for the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Colin Marshall, coming to you from deep in the bowels of the Barnes & Noble here at the Grove in Los Angeles, California, where I'm speaking with Eden Lepucky. She is a staff writer at the literary site The Millions, which I'm sure most or all of you have probably read before. Uh, she is the founder of Writing Workshops Los Angeles, and she's the author of a brand new novel getting much press called California. In the world of California, Eden, what has become of The Grove, where we're sitting now? Oh, I I ruined the grove in the name of art. Um, yes. In the very As first, many have wished to. Yes, right. Um, in the very first chapter, Frida, the the wife, um, she and her husband Cal have left L.A. and are living in the wilderness. Um, and she's thinking about this turkey baster that is a hoarded <laughs> possession of hers that nobody knows she has. Um, and she bought it at the grove. And she's thinking about how the the store that she bought it from was going out of business. Um, and she kind of imagines. The grove earning back its name and having orange groves grow over the, you know, the, the deplete, the, the closed stores. Um, and she imagines, I had a lot of fun writing this. <laughs> she imagines like the, the fountain, like, I think like dried up, um, and the trolley bell looted from the yes. trolley. <laughs> and I just had a delightful time doing that because I hate the grove and also kind of love to hate the grove and hate to love yeah. it, which I think most Angelinos feel about it. And you suspect they knew that would happen when they built it. Yeah. <laughs> right? They knew that we would come here in, in droves, like cursing that we were yes. here, but still keep coming back. <laughs> so, uh, listeners, you'll have guessed in this novel, California, something has happened that makes this world quite a bit different from the world we live in. It's been talked about, California has, as a post-apocalyptic novel, but it's not like... The sort of Cormac McCarthy white flash and society is destroyed. This is a novel of, I would say, gradual apocalypse. I mean, do you consider that to be a tradition, a gradual, a literature of gradual apocalypse? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, I am the first to admit that I don't read a lot of apocalyptic novels, that when I started this, I had read some, like The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood is one of my favorite novels, and I read The Road, obviously, which I really liked. Um, but I hadn't read that many, and so I was sort of ignorant of the tradition, but that, I think, helped me write the book, and that I didn't feel the weight of that tradition on my shoulders as I was working. Mm. Um, and what's pointed out to me often now is that what is different about my book is that it's not a singular event as it is in the road, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's actually just a kind of a slow, a cruel, a cruel of horrible things happening, which are present in our contemporary world. Things like climate change and the effects of climate change, um, you know, oil prices and there's giant earthquakes that kind of wreck California and snowstorms in the Midwest that decimate whole cities Um and I, I, I didn't want to make it a singular event because I don't think that's actually as scary as just taking our world and placing us on a trajectory towards ruin because that feels realistic. If we keep going in the way that we're going, we very well, very well may end up like Frida and Cal. Um, so I, I kind of like people sometimes say gradual or mid-apocalyptic or slow apocalypse. I kind of like those terms better because I'm actually, they're sort of in it. It's not really the post-apocalypse. Um, and it's sort of like life sucks and it just keeps going. <laughs> it's a real uplifting book. Sure. I mean, in a way, you've, you've found a way to write a post-apocalyptic novel after the Cold War. Because during the Cold War, we could have said that same thing. If we keep going the way we're going, suddenly there will be a, an event that destroys everything. You know, yeah. there will be global thermonuclear war. We still have a nuclear threat, but people don't seem to really think about it in the same way they did 20, 30, 40 years ago. Now, of course, I mean, this is kind of every era getting the apocalyptic literature it deserves, right? It's Now we think about, I don't know, I mean, people 
in a way, every generation kind of wants to selfishly be the one to witness the end of society on some level. But, you know, people write about this all the time. They'll say, oh, you know, look at the natural disasters across the world. Look at global warming. Look at banking crises. Look at fighting in Gaza. It's like a lot of scattershot things that to them add up to being the end of the world. I don't know. I mean, I can understand that there's a lot of sucky stuff happening in the world, but how do the people make the leap to, oh, this is going to be it. This is going to be all this stuff happening is going to cohere in an unprecedentedly disastrous way. Do you know what I mean? I know, exactly. And I think every generation has decided that something that just passed was the best and now it's getting worse. Um, and I think there is some hubris involved in thinking that you are going to face the end. And I, But I think ever since, you know, we could, we could go back to the fall from the Garden of Eden is sort of the first apocalypse that we have to... Um, function in. I do wonder if the speed of technology and the way that we find out about world events is speeding up our understanding of the world's demise. So I think there's always been conflicts across the globe and there's always been illness and all, and everything bad has always sort of been there before. And I kind of, that's a really broad statement, but nowadays we hear about it constantly. And I think that's really overwhelming for people. And so we, I think we tend to think that um, catastrophe is not imminent. It's actually occurring mm-hmm. right now because that we see our, you know, we see the social media feeds where we see all <laughs> these horrible things happening and we can refresh it and something newly horrible has occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's horrible gets clicks ultimately. Right, right. Horrible and cute animals, yes. I think. Right. Those, yeah, those exactly. Poles of the internet. Yes. <laughs> and thus of humanity. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is interesting to me because I do feel like before I had a child and even now that I have a child, I was very anxious about where the world was headed, just like probably every parent or parent to be or just any person. Um, but I also recognize that that's kind of a human impulse to feel that there's sort of a darkness coming. Um, so I, I don't know. I guess I always struggle with thinking like, oh, it really is horrible. But then also thinking about the great leaps and bounds that we've made as a species mm. and, you know, as a country and the progress that we've made mm. for, you know, human rights in the last hundred years is really, you know, um, beautiful. And so, and also faced with just on a daily basis with people who are very affectionate and tender and giving and compassionate. And so thinking about, you know, human beings are like that. And we also have, you know, the capacity for violence as well. Mm. So I kind of feel that tension in my own life on a personal level all the time. Mm. And in writing a, if we're continuing using the term post-apocalyptic novel, writing that, it's a chance for you to, it seems like it's, it's almost a pure narrative form because you can just, you can make, you can make the reader believe something big has happened. You won't, you, you don't reveal what it is right away, but then you can slowly drip feed them the information like, bam, here's some new revelatory fact about how bad the world has got. Yeah. Slowly you can explain why. Bam, here's another fact. I mean, that's it's almost like this archetypal narrative form you get to use because it's post-apocalyptic, right? Everything has changed, and you can decide how to dole out, how much to reveal, when to reveal, the extent of the change, right? Yeah, I mean, I always say that novel writing, for me, the experience of novel writing is the main aesthetic question in any, I mean, there are other questions craft-wise that when you're working on any book, and they're always different, but it seems to me I'm. this is the th- This is the first novel I've published, the second one I've ever written, and I'm now writing a third. But the question is always, 
when do you provide information and when do you withhold it? So, you know, Margaret Atwood says that writing a good, as a novelist, you have to be a burlesque dancer. Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to take off your clothes too fast because then the show will be over. But if you take right. off your clothes too slow, then you're going to bore the audience. Because you can't say, hey, here's what happened to the world yeah. and then tell the you story. To, That's not right. You have to tease it a little bit, yeah. right? You have to show a little wrist and then, you know, go from there. So I thought about that a lot. And it is really writ large in a book where some of the suspense is created by the reader wanting to know how the world ended up as it did. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the stakes are bigger and it's kind of exciting as a writer to think about how that exposition is really appealing to the mm-hmm. reader in a way that maybe it's not, I mean, it's even more appealing than it usually is for a reader. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, on the one hand, I really love doing that, but it was also difficult to figure out, you know, I would just be writing a scene and then, you know, in the very first scene when she's thinking, Frida is thinking about getting the turkey baster or how she had bought it at the gro- at it's crate and barrel. Yes. It doesn't, she doesn't yes. say, but she buys it at crate and barrel, <laughs> and she thinks about how she had you to buy. Held that I did because there's also and I forgot there's sur la table, <laughs> yes, which so it's the real question of my book: is it crate and barrel or sur la table? I'm telling you now, it's crate and barrel. Um, but she <laughs> only, thinks you about, only only hear it here, yeah, listeners. Right? <laughs> but she thinks about how the gold had to. She had to buy it with gold, and it, the gold had to be melted down already. Mm-hmm. And I sort of just wrote that in the moment. But as soon as I wrote it, I had a little ping of, oh, I'm actually discovering the world as I'm writing the book. Mm-hmm. And so it was I my experience as the writer mirrored what I hope is the reader's experience of as you move forward in the book, you hear about more and more of mm-hmm. what has happened. Um, and it was pretty thrilling to kind of get those things just kind of organically arriving in the text. And then other moments where I felt like, okay, now, you know, she's thinking, Frida's thinking about her brother or Cal's thinking about Frida's brother and Micah, the brother, was a suicide bomber at the Hollywood and Highland Mall, another mall in L.A. Um, and so, one gleefully destroyed. Yes, that one much more gleefully. Sure. It's a horrible mall, worse than any other mall in yes. L.A., I think. Um, but, you know, on, in those sections, really recognizing, okay, this is where I'm going to provide some f- m- longer swaths of information about what happened and trying to balance those with the present. Like that was a a real technical challenge that I wasn't used to because I haven't done this kind of world building in any of my other fiction. This central couple, Frida and Cal, they have memories of their childhoods, which lead me to suspect that this novel is farther in the future than a reader would immediately assume because it seems like some of the characters, they think back to childhood, but they're in their mid to late 20s and their childhood memories seem like they're still the future compared to mm-hmm. us right now. How much do we know about how far ahead the action is of this book? Um, the exact date, I'm not going to remember. It's in the 2050s. I don't remember mm-hmm. if it's 2057 or 2053. Sure. But it's funny is that I... Scale ahead it is. Yeah. Um, so it's about 30 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they were children, I mean, it's still in the future, but... I, I think what's interesting to me is like I wanted the world that they left to feel very similar to ours in a lot of ways. Like they have technology, they use these devices, and she's a blogger, she's blogged before, but I didn't want it to feel super, you know, a large right. leap forward in time. I didn't want it to yeah. feel that different. But yeah, you, they don't remember flying cars yeah, or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> Which is, oh, I'm still waiting for that damn flying car. <laughs> Whether um, they didn't show up, to be honest. I know. Um, but. I wanted it to feel closer, and yet when you do get their childhood, it doesn't feel like our our present day. Um, but you don't. And what's funny is when I finished the book and sold it, my editor was like, "Can I see a timeline of what dates things happened?" And I sort of laughed. I was like, "What's a timeline? Why would one need a timeline for a book about the future?" Um, and then I wrote one so that 
it would be easier for our discussions about what needed to be added to make the world clear. But so actually when I wrote the book, I knew in my body kind of when it was, but I didn't have an exact date or even an exact decade. I guess if you really sat me down when I finally was forced to sit down and outline, I knew it was 30 years, but I still had to do this mathematical sort of equation that is so anathema to the writing process, at least for me. Um, but yeah, I kind of wanted it simultaneously to feel close and yet far. Right. Because I think if it's closer, it feels scarier. It does, and it's see that there's no, there's no details that really alienate us from their experience, yeah. at least the experience they remember. And they don't really remember our experience here in the modern day. They don't remember the kind of abundance that we have now compared to what they have. They remember... Uh, a much things have got a lot shabbier even when they start remembering how things were before although it's funny frida early on in the book remembers getting she has she's she's, she's plagued by these dreams about getting lattes and she thinks back to uh, how nice it was i guess to be able to get a latte daily this is long after lattes have disappeared of course by this time you know they're living in, in a world without electricity of course or plumbing or anything like that but it people will read that and they'll they'll I think, try to say to themselves, I should really feel grateful for the latte that I have every day. But I realized you really can't be. You can you can be grateful for what is rare. Uh, and, and it's the same, th the characters in the book, Frida and Cal, they're grateful. They're grateful when they get, uh, I mean, what's they're grateful when they get a Band-Aid, right? Yeah. You know, that's, it's like, it's not possible to be grateful for a latte in the way that Frida in the 2050s is grateful for a latte, right? Yeah, I mean, I do, you're right, I do want people to stop and be like, oh, wouldn't it, because you're right, their life in LA, for instance, feels, I think, similar to ours, but it's shabbier is the right word. I mean, Frida remembers buying a single cloth napkin for herself when she's a teenager as a present, and that's like really special even then. Um, and, but even so, Frida herself is slightly materialistic, I think, and she's, I, she's, she's not as responsible as somebody else might be. So even when the world, when the city's getting worse and worse and she should be hoarding things, she's still kind of blowing her money on lattes. But there are yeah. lattes still in the city. So things aren't that bad yet. Right. Um, but I think you're right that we can't, what we have regularly, we can't, we can't long for. Um, and that's kind of what I was playing with the book in her artifacts. So Frida, has these objects that are very important to her and one of them is that turkey baster and that's a really valuable object to her because it's new and has never been used in a world where she has no new objects um, and the same goes for band-aids um, and for Cal it's definitely books carry that because he hasn't seen a, like a, a book you can hold in your hands and turn the pages mm. um, since college probably right. um, so that becomes extremely valuable and magical and powerful in a way that they would just are not in our everyday life and Cal, books are especially important to him because he went to, you have him having graduated from this sort of Deep Springs college-like place where, you know, where like 12 guys for two years farm and then read philosophers and then farm and read philosophers. And this, this college plank, it becomes very, very important to the rest of the book. Uh, he's not the only one who went there. And it's no coincidence in a sense that plank the Planck lifestyle prepared Cal to live in the post-apocalyptic world. What is, what is, do you have any experience with the types of people who go to these schools? I say these, I only really know of Deep Springs, yeah. but I mean, it's a type of education that exists. It does. I'm, I read this great article by Dana Goodyear. In the, uh, did you go to Deep Springs? 
I didn't go to Deep Springs. Dana Goodyear was on this. Sh- the closest I, I can say is Dana Goodyear was on this show, but okay. Deep Springs, I know I did okay. not go to Deep Springs. <laughs> like, did I strike I you as a Deep Springs? You, if you did go there. <laughs> um, so I read this article about Deep Springs, and I sort of just became obsessed with the idea of this school. And I knew even before I was even done with the article that one day I was going to write something that was based on it. But I'm not a researcher. As a writer, I tend to get an idea and then just want to play pretend and fantasize it about mm-hmm. it. And if I know too much about something, I feel like it inhibits what I want to imagine for it. Mm-hmm. So I did look at the Deep Springs website and their application. Um, and then I, it made sense that that would work for my book precisely because then Cal would be able to take Frida and help and survive in the middle of nowhere. He would have those skills. But it was equally important to me that it was a school that read a lot of philosophy and was extremely, you know, heady and abstract. And I kind of like the idea of, like, white boys who just, like, are reading a lot and probably becoming assholes about it. But also idealizing that in other ways and kind of admiring that that sort of life of the mind mm-hmm. but i went to oberlin which is a liberal call liberal arts college in ohio so a lot of and my husband went to the university of chicago so i kind of used some of his ways of his describing college and my own experience and when i was in college i was really into literary theory and mm-hmm. lit crit um so kind of using that as the inspiration and they're actually quite a they're two long flashbacks from Planck that were in the book earlier that got cut during edits because everyone said they detracted from the story. But I hope one day maybe I need to write like a Planck spinoff novel because uh, yes. um, I had just a really like I there's a whole cut deleted scene that's uh, so Frida's brother Micah went to Planck as well. And that's how Cal knows Frida through her brother Micah. Micah's the suicide bomber brother. Um, there's a whole scene where Micah and Cal go to a brothel brothel in nevada and that's how cal loses his virginity um and it's a i really love it i mean i don't i don't know about i'm not saying like it's a well wonderfully written but i found i learned a lot about cal and especially about cal and micah's relationship there that became important for me when the for later scenes in the book of kind of understanding character um so even though it got deleted it was an essential scene for me to write and it was just so fun to be at this Plank College, which is Deep Springs, but I don't really know what Deep... I've heard from actually, I think now, two Deep Springs graduates. Oh, really? Did they say you had it right? One person said, he wrote he wrote me an email and he said, I'm a Deep Springs graduate. This has to be Deep Springs. How do you know so much about it? Which I felt like vindicated me because I was like, I just imagined almost everything. And a lot of it is Oberlin, like the part where there's a part where Cal sees someone knocking on air, which is a sign of people showing agreement or support, but that's actually at Oberlin in the co-op system when they have their like meetings. If people agree with you, they, they knock an invisible door, which I always found extremely annoying. So I was, <laughs> I was glad to it's put it. old in year four. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I put it in the book. So there's a little, like there's a few gems for Oberlin students. Mm. Now, as you say, Cal and Frida remember this life they had in Los Angeles where they still had lattes, but things were getting expensive or scarce and life was not what it once was. Life was no longer what it even is for us now. They leave, at Cal's suggestion, they leave Los Angeles to some part of California. How much do we know about where this is? Now you're going to call me out. (laughs) Um, How much does the reader know? I mean, mean, how much does the writer know, right? Um, I originally, in a very early draft, they actually went to the Pacific Northwest, Mm. but then it didn't really make any sense. I was like, why are they up there? It's going to be too cold up there anyway. I have no idea where they are. (laughs) They're in California somewhere. And they go north. So I consider, and there's a redwood or two. So they're sort of like in the Sequoia area. And 
a couple people really want to know the answer. And it's, I mean, I grew up in LA and I barely knew where I was until I turned 16 and I was forced to learn the names of streets. So I'm just not a geographically inclined person anyway. Mm. Um, but I also kind of think it doesn't matter because they're pretty much out in the sticks by themselves and they don't go, even when they finally go to find other settlers because Frida's pregnant, they're not going that far. Mm. So I kind of like the idea of, you know, it's sort of post map almost mm. because it doesn't really matter if you're not really traveling. Who cares where you are? So I was kind of liking that idea a little bit. It's it's a setting of a makes me think about California's sort of uneasy relationship with nature. I mean, even here in Los Angeles, there's this sense that it, the city benefits from having so much nature around it, but it's also never been a really good relationship between nature and the city. Like it's there have been times when it's felt more threatening. I mean, we had a spate of sort of volcano erupting movies in the 1990s or this idea that you know something we used to worry about earthquakes more than we do now but what is is there some californian relationship with nature that we've not quite come to terms with probably i mean people ask me now if i'm a survivalist and i just i'm for the record i'm wearing pink suede high heels so the answer is no definitively no but i do think in la in particular I haven't. Re- I've read half of Ecology of Fear by Mark Davis, and actually, I read this years ago, and I had to put it down because it freaked me out too much. Which I don't say that very often, but I will say that. I mean, that book was successful in like making me totally scared to live in LA. Um, but apparently, at the end of that book, some a recent reader told me that there's a whole chapter dedicated to kind of LA apocalypses, and I think the landscape alone engenders that kind of anxiety because, I mean. We, I remember in elementary school when you, I took like three field trips to the, um, LADWP to kind of learn about how, like, to learn about water conservation and also to learn about how we get our water and the ways, and like the Joan Didion essay where she goes to the Hoover Dam and just thinking about what it takes to make this city work. I mean, maybe we're not so crazy as those who live in Las Vegas or Phoenix or something, but, you know, it could be worse, but we still have to get all this water pumped in, um, and I mean, the drought situation here right now is really scary. And I think it, un, you know, and then that water main busting recently oh, and just thinking like, that, yes. like this pure gold just seeping out and we, we have so many people and it's really kind of terrifying. Um, and then, you know, I think people really are scared of earthquakes or we've learned not to think about it. I think mm-hmm. we kind of coast on this. It's kind of like how people in LA are always like producing something. Um, but what they're exactly producing is actually going to dissolve once they actually have to talk about it. So I think we sort of have to, we, there's a certain delusion that's required to live in LA because of the landscape is kind of unforgiving in all these ways, despite the fact that the weather is so perfect all the time. Yeah. We feel the earthquakes, they happen. They're just not very big usually. And it's, you, there's nary a huge disaster you can point to in a long time in Los Angeles. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, like we, it's it's psychological disaster. There's the Northridge earthquake, but everything. I mean, that freeway. I remember the '94 earthquake so well, and I remember also how fast the 10 freeway that collapsed at La Cienega was fixed, as right. if it had never happened. Which is sort of how LA works in terms of revisionist history and re- i mean and la is one of my favorite places if not my favorite place on earth so i sp- i'm speaking out of love for the city but we tend to rebuild and my i my favorite game 
when I come back to LA, because now I don't live here, sadly, is to kind of play what sad Russian mini mall was, oh. was like raised yes. to build something new. And a lot of times I can't even remember what was there before. So oh, we have, I have that every day. I'm like, what was, what there? was there? I don't, and if it, it could be two blocks from where I live, it's just, it's, I guess. Yeah. And there's all that, there's that tour that some guy does where he takes you to old, like places that used to exist in LA. Right. So I think there is kind of a culture of forgetting a lot. And, I think we play that up also in terms of like forgetting that there were these huge earthquakes or that those huge, I mean, when I lived in Los Feliz in 2006, Mm -hmm. when those huge fires were going on in Griffith Park, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've kind of forgotten those too. Yeah. There's a sense that you don't really notice the effects of these things, even when they happen sometimes. I think of, say, you talked about the drought situation in California, and it's something I hear a lot about, but if I wasn't being told about it, I don't know if I would know there was a drought. Yeah. Uh, it's the same thing with you know, the financial collapse. You know, it's talked, you know, the terms it's talked about, and it's, it's, it's as if this was the biggest thing to hit America since the Great Depression, but I don't know that I would have noticed it had I not been told about it. Yeah. And that's true of every bad thing almost that I hear about. Yeah. It, things that are described in nearly apocalyptic terms as, you know, signs of the coming apocalypse. I can't think of one that I felt. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Is there some some sense that writing a novel like California, you're tapping into this, not desire, but fascination with, what if I actually felt an effect from one of these allegedly disastrous things happening in the world? I, I, you put that as beautifully put. I think that's true. And I think, you know, as, as scary, I mean, one thing that led me to write the book was I was driving down sunset and the streetlights had gone out and it was nighttime and it was really eerie. And I kept thinking like, what if LA just didn't recover and there were no services and there were no streetlights and no roads, basically no police force. And that's an, a reality for cities in America now. And thinking about what if that was a reality for LA and what would it require for that to happen? And as scary as that was in the moment, it was kind of a thrill to write. And I thinking about like Frida, I have her growing up basically where my dad lives, which is on right, like Fairfax and Melrose. And Mm -hmm. she works at Cantor's and she really has no real opportunities because the world's become the way it is. And you know, I think there, I think you're right that I wanted to really explore that fictive space because I'm, I, we, we're, it's the threat of it all the time. And then you, there are places across the world where there's like grand austerity measures and people in their twenties are kind of loafing about at their parents' house. And, yes. you know, it's, I wouldn't call it apocalyptic, but I'm sure on a personal level, it's really scary there. Mm. Um, and uncertain. And I don't think that level of uncertainty has hit the majority of middle class California. Mm-hmm. Because it's a place that seems resilient to it, it makes it that much more appealing to try to see what what if it wasn't so resilient. Yeah, like what if LA's weather wasn't just wasn't just beautiful <laughs> all the time and everything worked out? Because even now, when I think about the job, I'm like, it's going to rain. We are going to work on this. Right. It'll just everything will come together. It'll be fine. But you know, it might not. <laughs> yeah, there's a sense like, do we? Why do we need rain? Can't we just like? Pump it in somewhere else, you know, like it did it once before. Chemicals. Yeah, it's, it's true. There's this way that because you write with a, you, you write a sort of gradual apocalypse, it feels like less of an apocalypse than just sort of a turning back of the clock, you know, the story of buying yourself a cloth napkin as a birthday present that could have come out of the Great Depression, you know, or the, you know, the farming they have to do, the farming that Cal tries to do it, that could be out of the agricultural, the first agricultural age, you know, it's, did you think of it all in terms of just turning the clock back rather than destroying things per se? It's a good question. I, I definitely thought of it as the future. I mean, 
and thinking about be, mostly because the people doing those things um, are aware that they used to do it a different way. Mm-hmm. So I think that shift is mm-hmm. is what's difficult for them. Um, but I do think that a lot of post-apocalyptic narratives that come about that are sort of post-technology mm-hmm. are useful because they they work in the way that, you know, older novels do, for instance, um, you know, where, you know, it's easier. There's more mystery. There's more secrets because you can't just immediate. There's not easy answers. And, you know, there's not an easy way to connect. And I was also thinking about there's a lot of the names in the book um, of title of things are capitalized, mm-hmm. like communities with a capital C or the spikes with a capital S or the land with a capital L. And I was definitely playing on that idea of kind of starting the world over. So uh, Frida and Cal have these neighbors, Sandy and Bo Miller, who are have been they're dead before the book begins and how they died is a mystery in the novel. But Sandy Miller, who has, they have two children and she says how her kids are going to start the world over. So there's a positive and kind of an optimistic way of looking at it. Like, okay, well the world has basically gone to shit, but we have the opportunity to start over from the beginning where, you know, we have, we can farm and we can, and my husband says my book is like the most hipster book of all books because everyone, it's like artisanal everything. It's the Brooklynization of the apocalypse. Um, where, you know, where you have an opportunity to have a tiny community where everyone's making everything from scratch and you're not going to waste anything and you can farm. And, um, there's, you know, there's an opportunity. There's a point where Frida, I think it's Frida or maybe it was, it's Cal, I don't remember at this point who thinks about how they do this thing called thinking with a capital T where they just lie down, close their eyes and they ruminate on a singular single word. And I always think about like, uh, you know, in a slowed down life, that's kind of what you would do. That's kind of what you do at a writer's retreat. Basically you have 10 hours to just lie on the couch and think if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of the positive way of it. But I'm, I was interested too in kind of the failure of that, of the failure of going back to, ye olden times or <laughs> going back to the beginning and starting over because they, they don't do it well in the book. Turns yeah. out badly. <laughs> it seems like what we really want in the present day is some combination of old times and the future. Like yeah. nobody, nobody really wants to go back to having to think about growing food round the clock. Yeah. But, but if you had the option. <laughs> yeah. It's, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. You know, I hadn't thought about this in the, in the light of the sort of Brooklyn hipster uh, point of view, but I do think there is an anxiety about globalization and maybe this is also something from technology where you're hearing everything and you you're hearing about the world and at all moments and yet you have no idea where your food came from and there's like a real detachment from you know the food source and all that stuff and I think people are growing weary of that and so you mm-hmm. see a return of like you know that phrase farm to table restaurant I hear, I heard that every single city I went to on this book tour the bookseller would be like well we have a farm to table restaurant down the street and I'd be like enough with the farm to table but at the same time I was happy to know that everything was locally sourced and they knew their farmers and they knew who made what and I think that is a reaction against feeling powerless in kind of a global economy mm. um and you know maybe this isn't like a post 2008 recession of people feeling that real fear of like the global economy does not care about me and I'm just kind of a pawn on it. So can I in some way, cause you can't completely divest yourself of it, but can I in some way kind of enact some, some power through interacting with real humans? Mm. So maybe that's part of it. Mm. Or maybe that's just bullshit. <laughs> it's, it's, it seems correct. And it also seems equally correct that 
when a country is very well integrated with other countries in the global economy, they have less of a chance of turning apocalyptic in a way. You know, if we think of apocalypse scenarios, they tend to be inside countries that are not very well globalized, you know, the Hades of the world. Uh, it's it couldn't have hurt them to be better integrated to the the world as a whole. So it's sort of you never really you never really gain any ground on this, do you? You're sort of you have something to be insecure about no matter what, right? <laughs> it's true, <laughs> definitely. And something I thought of in the book was, you know, maybe because Frida and Keller are so isolated, I was sort of imagining this was like the fall of the American Empire, mm. and so maybe across the world in another country like India, things are great. Could be. You know, mm. and I also was I thought it actually scarier to think about, you know, the world isn't over if you have money. I think that's a really horrifying thought. And it's in some ways true. I mean, there are poor people in a number of countries in the Middle East, for instance, or Africa that, mm. you know, they're screwed. But, you know, we can have lattes here. Right. It's like it's it's this concept you have of the communities, which are, I suppose, we would think of them as like gated communities yeah. within within this ruined California and life in them isn't great as you describe it, but it's it's at least safe. Safety has become nothing is valuable but safety. It seems like in this in this world is that is that correct? Yeah, um, that's definitely a commodity that the communities are selling, and you can't get into a community unless you have money, and also you have to be kind of vetted, and you know how people get into them is kind of mysterious. But they have to keep them a certain size, and some are cost more but are much smaller, so you can kind of maintain you know, exclusivity and, you know, making sure that you're protected. Um, and that, that comes from my sister actually lives in Orange County and she is not in a gated community, but she lives by a few yeah. and I find them really creepy. I always <laughs> thought they were creepy and I find her neighborhood kind of creepy in that it's so perfect seeming like yeah. every, you know, they pay, they pay some money to be part of this large, this community. So it's not gated. Anyone can drive up or whatever, but they have like a community pool and there's like beautiful flowers. Everything's trimmed nicely. And like your house has to be painted a certain, in a certain palette, you know, I mean, it's a great place to grow up. I suppose that's what you hear in the schools are good. They're public schools, but I find them, there's something shadowy underneath um, to me, but I, I mean, maybe I just like, read too much, you know, like she, John Cheever. Um, but I also was interested in a community in the future where it would seem great, but in one of the community's pines, like the lights turn off at random times. It's right. the future is coming for them too. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of something I, I heard somebody say about the Soviet union, which was that it, it fell Yes, for economic reasons, but also it had been decades since those societies had given their people a reason to live. Uh, it sounds like in the communities in the world of California, they, they're concerned with safety. No one really has a reason to live in them. There is another example provided of life in this post-apocalyptic state, uh, which is a, another, not a capital C community, but a, a regular C community called the land, which has been how would, how would you describe it it's it is certainly not a capital C community but it is an organization it's it's a group of people trying to figure out another way to live here here in this uh, reality is it not yeah I mean I, what's funny is it's so obvious but I didn't intend it until I was about halfway through where um, 
the com- the land and the communities with a capital C are very similar. So they're an like organized group of people that are exclusive, and you know the the land believes in containment. That's like their tagline, um, and they are organized around you know a core set of principles of like what they believe, um, and you have to read to find out what it is. Um, <laughs> I'm, on the one hand, and I think you could argue the same for the communities with the capital C, is that it's just a group of people who are trying to get by and trying to find the best way forward in a world that's just seriously depleted. So on the land, you know, they have settled in a ghost town that it was a, a real actual ghost town that then became like a theme park that then was abandoned again. So it's a ghost town of a ghost town. Um, so they have the benefit of a place with buildings to live, and but it's kind of a cooperative society and it has a lot of um, idealistic principles and, you know, they're working together and it seems really great and you're like, well, why wouldn't you want to live here? But then there is sort of the, the, the nefarious elements of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because any, I think any community that need requires, um, rules of its people to a stronger degree has some issues <laughs> mm-hmm. and it won't let itself like organically grow into various sizes. That's questionable to me as well. There's these challenges that the groups have in, in this ruined America, but the challenges the individuals have, I mean, getting food, not being hungry, not getting diseases, reproducing if possible, finding shelter, finding security. I mean, does anybody, are these problems different in kind from our problems in reality or just different in degree? Well, I get there. You know, I like to say that Frida and Cal in the book, they, they're like a regular married couple to me. I really, what I was after was writing a domestic drama that just happened to take place in the future. Um, so even though, yeah, they have to deal with like, I mean, I think their problems are definitely, different from a regular couples in terms of like our feet are there's fungus going on yes, i mean fungus. that's probably a problem in some couples but probably not most you just go out and buy some special soap and you're okay yes. or will we eat or you know what if there's some freak storm and then we're really screwed and we're really the only ones and thinking about you know you might have people might live in a small town and not see a lot of other people or go on vacation with just their partner, but it's really the Frida and Cal show all the time. Mm. And I was thinking about what kind of, what pressure that would exert on their dynamic and how that dynamic would, because to me, they can spend a lot. They're a kind of couple that can spend a lot of time together and they're very different, but they're sort of, complement each other. And if anyone could do it, they could do it. So I was thinking about the ways that they, their dynamic functions in, you know, function successfully and the way that that dynamic is threatened when it's not just the two of them. Mm. Um, cause I find it really intriguing when you're with somebody for a long time and then a third person comes in or a fourth person and suddenly it's just, it's better in some ways. It's worse in other ways. So I was just thinking that on a really, truly just interpersonal level. Um, but I think a lot of their problems are pretty they're, I think Frida and Cal would be the same whether they were in the 2050s or in 2014. Mm. Um, and it seems to me that sometimes that pisses people off when they read the book. Some people really connect with that idea. It's interesting. I kind of love readerly diversity, I guess. But it seems to me some people are like, Ugh, why do they have these? Why are they being so secretive and immature and petty and da da da? And some people are like, this feels really realistic. And you know, we think that we would be these better people in these you know, exceptional circumstances, but maybe we wouldn't, maybe we would become more ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I always make this joke, like 
if my husband and I, we get along very well. We don't like, we're not like very, we don't bicker really or anything, but if we can't find a parking spot in a stressful situation and it's not the end of the world, I mean, imagine what bad stuff might emerge from us if it really were the end of the world. Yeah. I think that's the question a lot of readers will put to themselves reading this book. What would I do under these circumstances? But to me, it, there was a question sort of above that one, which was how far do circumstances have to change before it's not me anymore? I mean, I, I could envision, you could say, what's it, what's it like? What would it be like if I had to live without power and plumbing? Okay. Or what would it be like if I had to live without an arm or something like that? It's still you, but is you change things enough? It's not you anymore. Is it? I mean, this is the question, you know, white male like myself will often get asked, well, what if, imagine if you were black or a woman or so on. I think, well, okay, but that's not, at that point, it's not me. I mean, you realize that's someone else at that point. Yeah. You begin and end, I I suppose. At some point, I mean, can an apocalypse, (laughs) apocalyptic, can apocalyptic conditions mean you're talking effectively about somebody else or not? Huh, that's a really good question. I also, I mean, at the end of the book, I really do want people to think about how much they have changed. Are they still themselves? And what, by that point, I mean, they've already lived through the apocalypse, quote unquote. It's sort of a personal apocalypse that happens in the second half of the book. Mm-hmm. So are they, in fact, themselves at the end of the novel? I mean, sometimes it's interesting because sometimes readers really connect with Frida and Cal. And there's been a few readers who really hate Some readers hate Frida in a very specific way. And I like to say, well, I think she's supremely flawed and realistic, but Mm -hmm. she frustrates me to no end at times. But I also think, you know, this is a person who, you know, she was kind of born into an L.A. that was fraying around the edges and then got worse and worse. And she really didn't have opportunities to mature in the Mm -hmm. ways that people in their early, you know, 18 to 22 might mature mm-hmm. in, you know, in previous generations. And then her brother was a suicide bomber and kind of wrecked her family. And then she went to live in the middle of nowhere. And she's not a survivalist. Mm-hmm. She's someone who is an urban kid who had to learn to do all this stuff. And she's been around the same person for the last two years. I'm like, how that would change your psyche and change your behavior. I mean, I can't even imagine what kind of person I would be after all of those mm-hmm. um situation. So I kind of, I tend to cut her some slack and feel affectionate towards her because I feel like considering all that she's been through, there's a core of her that I can imagine she was born with and that she kind of carries with her throughout the book that she doesn't really, you know, there's a light that never goes out, I suppose. But you're right. I mean, what, what gets molded based on such extreme situations? I don't, Mm. that's the question. Yeah. Change the context enough and you, you know, it's, it's like there's, there's a lot of pitfalls I'm sure you thought about avoiding when you write a post-apocalyptic novel because, you know, you go into that tradition and there's there's quite a few duds. <laughs> yes. And it's like, you know, it's like writing a time travel book. It's it's hard to write a good time travel book. Uh, and that's another one. You know, you change you change the era somebody's in. You know, it's like somebody asking, what if you were born 100 years before? Well, then it wouldn't be me. You yeah. know, it's the same. It's the same thing. You change conditions enough. You change who the characters are. But... I, I do want to get a sense of how much ultimately by the end of this book you thought you were writing in this realm of post-apocalyptic novels. Maybe at the beginning you thought it, but by, by the end of it, had it had it separated from that for you? What do you mean? Because, <laughs> you know, you start out writing this setting that, okay, clearly America's been ruined already. What would What would this be like? But by the end, you know, in your actual writing process, you're not 
you, as you say, you're thinking about it more as a domestic drama yeah, at a yeah. certain point. By the end, were you thinking about it as either of those things? What had had the novel sort of separated itself from all traditions for you by the end of it? Yeah, I mean, I often get this question about why did I write a dystopia? What am I interested in in the apocalypse genre? And to be honest, because I was so ignorant of the genre, as I said, and because I was just really interested in the couple, that I really felt, and I'm sure that everybody feels this way and falsely, and you kind of need to feel this way to write, that I felt like I had set out on my own and that there were no other books that were doing what I was doing, which I recognize is not true. But I think every when any writer starts out on a project, you have to kind of embark with that delusion. Um, and I think just the muck of writing, of thinking about paragraphs and character arcs and, you know, really trying to deeply see a scene and feel like you're inhabiting another person's consciousness, that kind of takes precedence over all other intentions in terms of genre or domestic drama. Um, it's funny. There's a lot of world building at the beginning of the book, and there's a lot of world building in the final two chapters of the book. Um, but in between, I feel like there's just a bunch of people out in the woods. So that could in some ways take place anytime. Mm. Um, and so that didn't feel quite post-apocalyptic or speculative. Mm. This, this apocalypse in any case follows on from, as you say, a, a Los Angeles that is fraying at the edges and soon becomes uninhabitably dangerous. I feel like people for a long time have been describing Los Angeles as fraying and oh, it's so dangerous and, even when it's clearly not true, there's some sense of like, obviously Los Angeles is terribly broken. Obviously it's getting worse all the time, but I, it's just like a meme. I mean, I don't know what's, what's been your, your reaction to that. It's, it's, it's this, it's been in the conversation as long as I can remember. It's probably been in the conversation as, uh, since the sixties or seventies that Los Angeles is this mess of a place that's always getting messier. Why do we need to think that? You know, it's funny. I actually don't. I think in the last five years or so, it's gotten a lot better. True. I mean, we're talking about reality and such. We still like our ruined Los Angeles as in we, fiction. We need. I think we we like feed off of it. But like, I mean, of course, I think every major city lately has done a really good job of pushing out the poor, so that you're like, I don't see the poor. I mean, there's we some still cities. Have Skid Row here. Yeah, I know, but I think we've done. I mean. It reprehensibly, I had a friend who did worked on like the homeless problem here and did the mm. homeless count. But I think it's easy to be blind of that because mm. of the way that the city is built so that we, the poor people are getting pushed farther and farther out of LA city limits. So you could sort of feel like, and there's so much money in LA. Mm. Um, and every time I come back, I feel it and I'm kind of struck by it. Um, but LA to me seems to be getting better. There's more public transportation. Um, it seems like culturally LA is in, getting better and better with every year. I think the, the, the speed of development in LA and the population in LA is, feels untenable to me at times where I'm like, we really all can't be here right now. Really? Like it just, so that seems to be an anxiety for me, but I feel like the, the pendulum has swung in recent years to, to the sort of LA was shitty, but now it's getting better. Mm. Um, actually it was funny yesterday at a San Francisco reading, somebody made a comment that LA was this cultural wasteland. <laughs> and I was thinking how I hadn't really heard that cliche in yeah. so long, not only from Angelinos, but is it I, 1960. Yeah. Even in New York, I feel like I don't hear that anymore. I hear everybody yeah. saying, Oh, LA is so wonderful. I love to go to New LA and the bookstores are great and the museums and the concert hall. So I have, it's, it seems to me that we still hold on to the apocalyptic card, but yeah. as a, in, in, with, as far as realistic, appraisal of LA, it seems to be mostly positive nowadays, unless I'm just... I think, I think it is, and you, might, but you mentioned that idea where we can't all be here, can we? <laughs> I feel like there's not that many people here. I mean, if you really break it down, 
I just came back from Seoul where there's 25 million people in the same, in the same area. And it doesn't feel like uninhabitable, but to me, I mean, California, the state, not the novel, it, it, it doesn't have that many people in it. I mean, it's, it's got less than 40 million people. And I mean, yeah, it's got more than people than Canada, but for all its cultural cachet, California, there's, it, sometimes it seems like there's almost nobody here. You know what I, I mean? This is a state. I'm thinking like my dad has some old neighbor of ours gave us this video from the, it was like 1985 and he gave it to us because there's a part where I'm in it. Yeah. It's from his birthday party. But there's a part before that where they, the guy doing the video just drove down Melrose with his camera and it looks like a one horse town. And that's mm-hmm. not even that long ago. And just to yeah. think about the amount of development that's happening and the kind of the building and the rebuilding that, I mean, and obviously compared to Seoul, Seoul it looks Paltry, right? Yeah, sometimes. yeah, and I mean, California as a whole. I mean, when you drive across California, it's like nobody. Yeah. Hello, hello. <laughs> yes, yeah. There's just those cows on the five, right? <laughs> and that's it. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking, I was just driving, this is sort of off topic, but I was driving in the South for some of my readings and I was thinking about how green and lush and beautiful it was. Um, and there were really no people around. And I was thinking, well, that's why there are people who suggest that climate change is a fiction or a myth because mm. it's so beautiful here. You could not even imagine that, mm. you know, humans are ruining the world. Right. It just comes back to the sense of the way our ideas about what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with California, what's wrong with our city, never quite align with what might actually be wrong with it. I mean, the sense that California has too many people in it, I mean, it's, come on. It's not, well, that's that's one thing. I mean, that's that, this is what I'm getting to. It can seem, we have good ways of making it seem like certain things are the problem when certain other things might actually be the problem. You know, we we, we might live in ways where we individually take up a lot of space and that might make it seem like population is the issue when, yeah. in fact, something else is the problem, yeah. right? You're probably right. And I don't pretend to know really what's wrong with California. Yeah, maybe nothing is. I it's don't know. Perfect. That's Everything's perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's going well. It's one of those things. How can we really know? We got rid of our deficit, didn't we? The budget's <laughs> looking good. We're fine. Everything's fine. It's something else that they touch on, that the character touch on in the novel is that nothing's ever, you never really know you're safe. Yeah. But you don't know that in the abundant, you know, the sort of abundant present either, right? I mean, safety is one of those things that you sort of decide you have it or you don't, right? It's, yeah. it's more it's more psychological than anything. I think. I mean, I think that's kind of the definition of terrorism of mm. suddenly being afraid to fly in an airplane. And I remember very early on, like uh, it might even been before September 11th or right after, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, he said something like, "Real terrorism will happen when you'll be afraid to go to a restaurant because you'll mm. be afraid someone will blow themselves up." And that obviously stuck with me because I put it in my book. Yeah. Um, but I think there is sort of an illusion of safety that we, you know, that's what's so scary about, you know, people coming with guns into a movie theater where there is no security at movie theaters. And yet you just assume that everyone is adhering to the same contract of how we exist in public space. There is an essay also by Jonathan Franzen in How to Be Alone mm-hmm. about, um, you know, it's a question about pri- I don't, somehow this relates for me, but the question of public versus private mm-hmm. and that it he was more um, concerned with people, not so much the public, you know, the government entering private spaces, but the idea that the private was entering public space. So things Mm -hmm. like people having um, 
serious conversations in public on their cell phones was deeply wounding to him and mm-hmm. kind of alarming. Mm-hmm. But I think there's similar something similar there in terms of like we have an illusion. You have an you have created an illusion of privacy for yourself that does not exist, or you have kind of an illusion of how public mm-hmm. how we should enact how should we should uh, behave in public space that is also just a, an illusion. Right. You know, when, when people enter the world of California, the novel, you know, they they long as much for their illusions as they long for the actual things that they miss. I mean, even when they're, they get to a form of society, Frida and Cal, Frida starts thinking about, oh, remember, remember how I felt when it was just me and Cal? You know, she thinks back to just sort of what her perception was. You're, you're always kind of, you're always kind of inventing your own perceptions of how the past was as you go. I mean, this happens in America, doesn't it? You think, remember how we were all feeling really prosperous in the nineties or fifties or whatever? Were we? I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know. I know. Now it's funny because, you know, I wasn't alive. We weren't alive in the fifties and I kind of imagined this sort of Norman Rockwell sort of, (laughs) but that actually in fact was not, Yes. I mean, were those the communities of their day, capital C? Oh, probably, right? Mm. Um, But I also thinking about, you know, in the flashbacks that I have in the book, you know, for instance, Cal thinking about college, it's a very double-sided memory. On the one hand, he really values it in this way that he, you know, was sort of the best time of his life. And yet he has a, there's a darkness at the edges because he remembers how Micah was like. And later in the book, he comes to see Plank in a different way that he had never really allowed himself to imagine that his alma mater could be anything but pure. (laughs) So kind of playing with that a little bit. Mm. Do you have some specific interest in how closed societies shape your perceptions of things, be it a Deep Springs College, be it Oberlin, be it a community. I mean, there's this seems to come up as a theme in, in your book and in the conversation, the way your thinking changes when you just get into a closed circle like that. I guess so. I always say that my fiction that I usually write is people talking in rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, Got to talk somewhere. Really, and it's dramatic, right? <laughs> rooms. But I mean, a room is an enclosed space where you have this sort of notion of transgression could occur because it's an enclosed space. So I guess in general, I am on a sort of broader level interested in that. And it's funny, like I said, I didn't think too hard about, I kind of write intuitively. I don't know where I'm going when I'm writing. And so the themes and the motifs kind of come to being, and Mm. some of them are so obvious that if I had done it on purpose, it would be almost silly. Mm. Um, But I guess I am kind of interested in that and the ways, and I'm interested in like this question, like you said, like, are you the same person if all these things change? So are you the same person with one, how you change depending on who's around and what the societal and kind of um, social pressures are? Mm. I threw this out just casually earlier, but do you, do you think each era has its own brand of apocalypse? Oh, for sure, I think. Mm. I think everybody thinks the world is ending all the time. <laughs> yes. I just think that we're probably right. Uh, <laughs> I, know. I mean, I do think, right? I mean, I suppose, you know, we think about like post-World War II and this kind of the baby boom generation, you know, and that like the like thrill of being alive after a war that they didn't. I mean, we're some we're we're told that historically they did not believe it was the end of the world, mm. but somebody must have been ready for the shoe to drop. Yes, yeah, so someone's always ready, yeah, right? But and then you know, then we get into the Cold War and that sort of like you know you, the antagonist, mm. the, the unknown antagonist or the known one. So that's always been present. I don't know. I get this question all the time now to kind of speak about our human instinct for mm. doom. 
But I don't ever know what to say because I'm like, I have it, but I'm also kind of a sunny person at the same time. So right. I just assume that everybody else has it too. And you, you seem to operate on the premise that when everything ends, everything doesn't end. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole, that could be the, that, that could be the tagline for this novel, yeah. couldn't it? <laughs> Good for the movie poster. <laughs> but it's true. That's, I think what's scariest is to think like, if a nuclear bat blast occurs and we're all this, like, LA is flattened, well, then we're flattened and people will mourn us on Facebook in New York or whatever. Sure. But we won't have to, like, emerge from the swamp, right? Mm. But I think it's actually scarier for things to just get worse and worse and you keep waking up. I mean, isn't that why grief is so horrible? Mm. Somebody died and you have to live and continue to live in that pain that does not go away. It only changes. Mm. I haven't actually deeply grieved anyone, but everyone I know who grieves, that's sort of what comes up for me a lot when they're mm. like that's the kind of common theme that I pick up on is that that sense of loss just being transformed day to day and never really disappearing and that's the pain of it mm. so I guess that's what I'm interested in mm. writing about the way that it, it's not the ending it's whatever comes after the ending yeah, that's exactly. where you start exactly like all good tra- <laughs> tragedies <laughs> And it's the way that this novel, California, starts by our guest today on the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast, Eden Lepucky. She is a staff writer at The Millions. She is also the founder of Los Angeles Writing Workshops. She is the author, as I say, of California, brand new. It's a novel that is very much tapping into the current, the apocalyptic uh, fantasies, dreads of today. Eden, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.com. Thanks.